0: Welcome to the podcast of Midtown Church OKC, a church of the Nazarene. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that lives the way of Jesus. We want to develop real relationships and have real conversations, so we would love to hear from you. Find information about our worship services, email a pastor, follow our blog, sign up for our newsletter, and find out how to be a part of our community by visiting our website, MidtownChurchOKC.org
1: So, Lord, we are wowed, and we are astonished. And we recognize that when you give specific calls to specific people, it actually uh, bleeds into each one of our own individual lives. And when we see hands laid on a person... We know that figuratively the hands of the church are laid on each one of us because you have crafted us and you have made us in your image and the very imprint of God is on each one of us. So as we affirm and confirm and pray for and bless Hope as she begins this wonderful journey, we also recognize that it is in you that we hear our own call. And that in each one of us, we have the ability to respond by saying, We will do whatever you ask us to do, God. We are grateful that we are a part of a, a congregation. In a denomination that recognizes that you have given the authority for preaching and teaching and evangelism and carrying out the sacraments and healing in the lives of women. And we spend our time coming under their leadership with humility and grace. And we listen and we listen well. Thank you for the words that you are putting into hope. Thank you that her name is an exemplifier of what you want to bring to our community. Thank you that she began by pastoring her little congregation at home, and now she is pastoring our congregation here. Would you anoint her and bless her as she does this good and sacred work and as she begins on this sacred journey? We love you, and it is in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray.
0: Our text tonight comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and we have ushers that have Bibles available to you. Scripture will be on the screen, but if you're old-fashioned like me and you like something in your hand to read with, you can put your hand up and they'll give you one. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you don't have a Bible and you want to take this home with you, you're welcome to do that. If you um, have a Bible, you just want to leave it here on the chair after you're done with it. That's fine too. Before we read together, I want to um, recap for us a little bit where we've been um, since Pastor Chris led us through our first sermon in in 1 Corinthians last week. Uh, We'll be here another week too, so it's good that we settle ourselves in the story of what's happening here with Paul and his communication with the Corinthian church. Uh, Pastor Chris reminded us that Corinth, a city that many of us probably are not that familiar with, was... A really important city in its day. It was kind of like New York City, New Orleans, Boston, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. But it had some really um, dark sides to it. It was a place obsessed with shame and honor. And the high society, the men, worked really hard to maintain and climb up higher ladders of honor and shamed anyone they could as they did so. And so um, we have these people in Corinth, this church, or maybe a few small house churches that are grappling with what it means to live in this culture and yet try to live out the way of Jesus. And in this house church, there is quite a diverse makeup of people. There are Jews and Gentiles, but then there are also really well-off, well-to-do people of high society and then Quite poor, people of very low society, even slaves. And so um, this congregation has all manner of issues. <laughs> they are not necessarily the church that we want to be, but they give us really good information because Paul had a lot of things to say to them, and they had a correspondence of at least seven letters and several visits that make up First and Second Corinthians. So. We have a lot of information that help us know what's going on here. And so in this letter, Paul is grappling with some serious issues um, and he has his hands full and we will get to hear all about one of those issues tonight in chapter 8. So if you would stand with me now as we read together God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much, but the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So, What about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there only is one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one god, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we all live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created, and through, him, through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real, so when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So what if, so if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God, and so we can say together, thanks be to God. In 2009, Brent and I lived in Swaziland, a tiny country in southern Africa, for one year. We served there as volunteer missionaries at the beginning of what's called the Swaziland Partnership, um, connecting Nazarene mission enterprises in Swaziland with uh, Bethany First Church of the Nazarene and Southern Nazarene University. Uh, On our Preparations to go, we were limited to two 50 pound suitcases each, so a total of 200 pounds worth of things to take with us to live in a foreign country for a year. And so we had to think long and hard and plan carefully about what those items would be. And one of the items that made it into Brent's suitcase was this necklace. And you can't necessarily see it super well, and it has since actually started to fall apart. But this necklace was the first gift that I gave him when we started dating. Now, it was early 2000s. (laughs) And so the surfer necklace was really cool back in the day. And he uh, brought it with him to Swaziland. And we weren't there very long uh, before We spent time with a man named Dr. Samuel Hind. He's known as Babe Hind in Swaziland, Father Hind, and he is legendary in the country. Um, He not only is a renowned doctor, but um, has a really high place of standing with the king and also with the Church of the Nazarene. His father, David Hind, was the first missionary doctor from the Church of the Nazarene and is the father of modern medicine in the whole country. So he's kind of a big deal. Our first time with him, we were with him just for a little while, and then Bobby Hind kind of whisked Brent off to the side and um, very sternly and urgently told Brent that he could never wear this necklace again. He said, The shells on this necklace are the very same shells that traditional healers use and wear in their rituals, and they convey dark power, oppressive power, and anyone in Swaziland would associate that with Brent and our time there would be ruined, (laughs) basically. And we were like, wow, okay. We didn't know that. Thank you. We were incredibly surprised. We were very taken aback. And at that moment, in that brief one-on-one side conversation, Brent had two choices, He could have said, well, thanks, Dr. Hine, for that encouraging word, but actually, it doesn't matter to me, because I brought this necklace because I liked it, and my wife gave it to me as a gift several years ago. It doesn't mean anything dark or scary to me, and I'm free to wear it. It's my own free choice. I brought it within my 100-pound limit, and I'm going to wear it. The Swazis, I'm sorry, they're just uneducated and superstitious people, and they need to get over it. Or, on the other hand, he could have said, thank you for telling me this. I will never wear this again because I never want to do or say or wear anything that would cause a problem for our Swazi brothers and sisters. Now, I'm sure you have no question whatsoever that Brent chose the second option. I don't even know if the first option even crossed his mind, which I'm aware that everyone's now looking for him. He's homesick. (laughs) So you can pray for him while I'm talking about him. So uh, it's really obvious to us, right, that Brent should have done what he did. Unfortunately, the congregation of Corinth was stuck with a very similar issue, and there were a number of people that couldn't make it to option number two. They were still at option number one, and it's hard for us to understand how this works because like, we're like, meat? What is this even about? So we got to dig down a little bit deeper and understand that this issue was about meat, but it wasn't at the same time. In Corinth, as in most ancient cities, men, meat was a really expensive luxury reserved primarily for the wealthy. And most meat that was available was um, Was to purchase was a byproduct of temple sacrifices. So the Greco-Roman world recognized a ton, like hundreds of deities from both Greek and Roman traditions. And then the Caesar himself was also uh, a god requiring worship. And so in any city, there were many, many, many temples, each to a different deity and each one promising certain benefits. So it would go something like this. Say a merchant who owned ships would go to the temple of Poseidon, the god of the sea, and offer a gift um, praying for safe passage of his ships that were leaving port that next day. And so he would bring him an animal to slaughter and offer as a sacrifice. And then after the priests offered that sacrifice, they would go back wherever they went to, the side butcher shop or something, and they would butcher the animal and then sell it um, in a meat market connected to the temple. And yet the temples were also places of these lavish banquets where all of the well-to-do people would display their wealth and good taste while honoring whichever god they needed to appease at that particular day. So another example, say a man is running for public office and he would host a large dinner party with tons of meat available because meat is a sign of wealth and he needed to show that he was really well off. And so he would invite all of his friends with him to this lavish banquet, and he would hold it maybe at the the temple of the Caesar, the emperor. And it would be a sign to his friends that he was loyal and that he was wealthy and that he was someone that would really serve them in public office, but it would also be a sign that he was loyal to Caesar and would do a good job in government. And, And in a culture dominated by gaining honor and avoiding shame, These kinds of dinner parties for the wealthy elite were incredibly important. Turning down a request could have been received as a great insult, and it could very easily result in a man and his whole family losing their place and position in society. It could result in losing business from other people who wouldn't choose to do business with them anymore. It would result in a lower standing for their entire family, which would affect their whole economic and social well-being. So meat somehow, all of a sudden, turns out to be kind of a big deal. And so here's where it gets to be an issue. Since coming to faith in Jesus, some of these Corinthian believers could see and understand that the facade of temple cult was really just that. It was a facade. The temple cults, the deities that they worshipped, and the gods they tried to please, never actually had any power at all. And so the meat sacrificed to gods was no different than meat that wasn't sacrificed to gods. And because they understood that there was actually no other God than the God who had revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So for them, they experienced newfound freedom. They could eat meat and they could go to banquets and it didn't have anything to do with any other God. It didn't have to be some kind of form of worship. They found freedom. And the ones who could afford to do this wanted to continue eating meat like they've always eaten meat, and they wanted to continue going to banquets like they've always been able to go to banquets. But there were others. Most likely, some of these were among the poorer and less educated group in the Corinthian church, and these people in the congregation just could not see past this. They wanted nothing to do with even the appearance of idol worship or the emperor cult. For them, this was such a dark and oppressive force that they they found freedom from it and didn't want to even go anywhere close again. And they couldn't understand how anyone else who did call themselves a Jesus follower could associate with that, could see past it, could even be in the presence of what happened in those places. And so, along with several other issues that Paul writes back to them about in the letter of 1 Corinthians, the people of Corinth send off a letter to Paul and ask, here's the two sides, who's right? Paul, decide between us, help us, pick a side. And Paul does actually answer their question, as we saw. He basically says that, yeah, okay, the people with knowledge are correct. Knowledge was a big issue in the Corinthian church. Who had it? Who didn't? If there was special revelation, uh, if there was special permission granted to people who had a certain kind of knowledge or education, they were always keeping tabs on these kinds of things. It was a hot-button issue for them. Another way that they measured each other with honor and shame. And so Paul's very careful about this word, choice of knowledge. He says, yes, we all have knowledge, okay, And you're right in saying that meat sacrificed to idols has no power over you. But, he says, that would be all fine and good if this was only about meat. But it's not. It's not the real issue. Whether to eat meat or to attend a banquet is the issue that might rise to the surface. But underneath the real issue here is how well we love one another. That's what's really going on. Paul says, while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. And I hope we're paying attention because this is astonishing. This is groundbreaking. This is new. This is is a whole new paradigm. Because as you and I very well know it doesn't take us very long at all to realize how in the old way of doing things, in this way of the world, knowledge is just about the most important thing there can be. I mean, we even have things that say knowledge is power, right? I mean, that's, we, we say that. And how much, we de- how much we know determines how far we go in life. And we all aspire whether we actively try to or not, but in our minds we're just wired to aspire to be the smartest person in the room and we look around, if that's not us, who is it? And then many of us, I may or may not know because this is me, but many of us then, if we're not the smartest person in the room, look for other ways to gain up, to collect knowledge. Can we collect dirt on other people in the room? And can we be the smartest people in the room that way? This is how we of the world prove our worth. And we gain places of honor. And this is how the world works. But it's not how the church works. The church is not like the world. Among the people who follow Christ who was crucified... Knowledge is absolutely no longer the most important thing. Love has become the most important thing. Because Jesus changed everything about how we understand and interact with the world when he, son of God, who had all knowledge and all power, gave up his comfort and gave up his rights, gave up his normal And he chose an inferior place for himself because God so loved us, the world. And so in this church, not just this local congregation, but this body of Christ that spans time and space, in this church, we are a community defined by that action. And life for us has now become more than just figuring out what works for me. What's my best way forward? Life is not just about my own personal freedom or living my best life now anymore. It's not just about my own desires and my own preferences and my own rights these are no longer the highest good. They've been replaced. I think I was able to see a glimpse of what this looks like yesterday. For the last four years, I've served on the board of Lovelink Ministries, which is a compassionate ministry from the Church of the Nazarene here in Oklahoma City. And yesterday, we gathered for our annual board retreat. We had a couple of hours in prayer together for... Um, for the work and for the city, and dreaming and getting to know one another, and really visioning about what 2018 was going to look like for us. And the staff joined us this year, which was awesome. Uh, Pastor Andre, as a part of that staff. And uh, two of them are new hires within the last six months, and most of the board didn't know them, and they didn't know most of us. And so, around that table, with this staff and board combined, we had uh, multiple master's degrees. We had one PhD and one PhD in progress. We had a CPA, we had an attorney, we had a business owner. Collectively, we also represent decades of missionary service and travel on at least three continents. And several people speak two or three, one person even speaks four languages. It's a really impressive bunch. And we spent a lot of time getting to know one another and trying to get a clear picture of the days ahead. It was a really good day. I made the agenda. I'm the board chair this year. I made the agenda. We ticked through the list. I'm sure you can imagine me taking through a list. But I think that our best achievement that day was something that never showed up on the agenda and, in fact, something that I wasn't even on my radar one of the newly hired staff members told me afterward, as I was uh, taking her home, because we live in the same neighborhood. She told me afterward that she loved that day because even though she has never attended a single college class, no one made her feel any less important around that table. She said with joyful tears in her eyes, When I gave ideas, They were treated just like everybody else's ideas. And I was so proud. I drove home yesterday incredibly proud of this brave woman, but also incredibly proud of this group of people who in very simple and natural ways gave us a beautiful picture of how love, not knowledge, defines the people and the work, and the relationships of the church. I think there was another part of me that was proud because maybe I'm an idealist, maybe I'm nostalgic for a time that I didn't even live in, but I love the early stories of the Nazarene church. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Many of you here might not know anything about Church of the Nazarene, but we're a part of that. And over a 100 years ago, there were people gathering, beginning in Los Angeles, uh, and people of clout, I mean, people that had degrees, people that had wealth, and yet they had experienced God in a way that shook them, that astonished them, that changed them. And they soon found themselves... in places that they wouldn't belong. And these, our foremothers and forefathers decided to call themselves people of the Church of the Nazarene because they wanted to be identified with Jesus of Nazareth, the place that people said, can anything good come from there? Because they found themselves in places that people said that about too. Impoverished urban neighborhoods, rampant with alcoholism, and abuse, and neglected children. And because our foremothers and forefathers made their home among those people, they decided to take on certain practices themselves. Many of them were wealthy, were well-educated, and ran in high circles. And yes, they knew that there was no biblical mandate drawing a line in the sand that you couldn't drink alcohol or you couldn't gamble or you couldn't smoke. But they said, we have witnessed the havoc that these things have produced within families and neighborhoods, and so if it does that for you, I won't have part in it. They said, I'm not addicted myself, but how can I enjoy alcohol after seeing the way that it has destroyed your life and your family Or if gambling has been an impressive force in your life, my brother, my sister, my neighbor, then how can I just go to the races and pretend it isn't happening all around me? If smoking tobacco has brought you disease that you can't afford to buy treatment for, then I can't just say that I feel sorry for you while primly smoking a couple of cigarettes to look cool at a party. I I can't do that anymore. And I have great Respect and love for the people who made those choices. Now, many of us who have been in the Church of the Nazarene a long time may know that over the decades, those decisions came to be badges of legalistic behavior instead of standing in solidarity with others. But let's please not forget how it started. Let's please not overlook this beautiful, self-sacrificing, standing-in-solidarity kind of love. And I dream of a day, maybe it looks differently today than it did then. Maybe it looks exactly the same. But I dream of a day when the people called Nazarenes would choose that again and again and again And again. Because every week when we gather here in this place to worship, we say together, God died in solidarity with us. In essence, Jesus has said to us, What's harmful for you is harmful for all of us, and so it's harmful for me. So, yes. I know that I am king of all and ruler of all and creator of all, but I will put aside my own rights and I will lay down my own freedoms and I will stand next to you and share all that burdens you and I will even share all that shames you. And since God himself has chosen to be in solidarity with us, we now can choose to be in solidarity with one another. We said, since Jesus has been the very best neighbor to us, we want to be good neighbors to one another. So we have this as our example. This is the way of Jesus. But I think there's a way of understanding even the way that is Jesus that can get us off track. Because it's not as if Jesus is just a model that blazed a trail and now we have to go read the signs and follow it on our own. Jesus is both our path and he is the friend walking next to us teaching us the path, showing us the signs, whispering in our ear, showing us how it's done. We don't have to just try hard and love one another and grit it out. He enables us He frees us. He teaches us. Last week, one of my Facebook friends asked this question What do you want more than being right? And I thought this was a fabulous question, a very convicting question. Because to be honest, it took me a minute to know what that answer was. When I'm honest with myself, I really like being right. And mostly this is because I want other people, I want you people, to think that I'm smart or that I'm good. I want you to like me and I want you to admire me. But what would happen? What if I don't need other people to assure me that I'm good enough anymore? What if I don't need other people's affirmations to make sure that I'm smart enough or that I measure up or that I'm loved? What if there is a way for me to feel secure and affirmed without relying on everybody else around me to make me feel this way? In Jesus, I hear and I pray that you hear God say, You are good, you are loved. And you don't have to prove anything to me. Because, friends, here's what I've found. Hearing and rehearing and rehearing and rehearing and remembering this truth from Jesus sets me free so that I can actually, truly want something else than just wanting to be right. I can want something more than I want that. And slowly but surely, my own desire to love well. My desire to see others flourish. My desire to see a strong community built of mutual love and self-sacrifice and solidarity. These desires are actually greater than my own desire to be right. Thanks be to God. This is the transforming work of God's grace in me. And this is why we can say, since Jesus has been the very best neighbor to us, we will be good neighbors to one another. Because when we experience this, it has not just taught us something. It's not just a piece of information that we store away to make us feel good on a rainy day. When we have experienced the work that Jesus has done for us and to us and continues to do, we are changed. And we are enabled and empowered to love other people as we have been loved. And we are enabled and empowered to be the kinds of neighbors that we so desperately want to be. At the end of well, toward the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He references again how knowledge is not the most important thing. And it's within a passage that is incredibly well known. But he says, if I have all the knowledge and all the prophecy and all the gifts in the world, but I don't have love then what? Because love is patient and kind. And love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking an unknown language and all of this special, special knowledge will one day become useless. But love will last forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we ask that you would free us from our old ways of doing things. We don't want to measure ourselves or others anymore by how much we know or don't know. We don't want to prove our own abilities to make ourselves look better. We don't want to fight for our own rights. We don't want our own freedom, even the freedom that you have given us. We don't want that to be used as a weapon against our own brothers and sisters. And so we need your help. We ask that you would open our eyes to see how you love us. You would also open our eyes to see where your love needs to penetrate deeper, so that we may be changed. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill in all the spaces that have been empty in my words, and that with your own voice, you would speak clearly what it is we need to hear from you. And would you give us courage to respond in
1: obedience?
0: We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.